Welcome. Thanks for tuning in to Grand Rounds, Connecticut Children's Office of Continuing Medical Education Pediatric Podcast. This podcast series will assist in developing new skill sets based on recent pediatric advances in a wide variety of specialties, identifying evidence-based data to support improved outcomes in pediatric healthcare delivery, increasing knowledge about research with implications for clinical practice. And now, here's Grand Rounds. Good morning, colleagues and friends. Welcome to our Grand Round series. We have a very special guest today, and I'll introduce Dr. Jutani in just a minute. I did want to take a moment to, to just to pause and, and give our heartfelt sense of friendship to the people in Ukraine. It's just uh, tragic what, what's going on there. And when you know things like this occur, you know one of the things that I can do is perhaps pray uh, that that things get better. And this morning I found something that I think would be useful. And uh, you know generally I stay out of politics in in this session, but in this situation I think I you know standing for the people of Ukraine uh, against tyranny. That's exactly what this is in the face of an individual, not the Russian people. It's really an individual that's leading to this humanitarian crisis, uh, in which hasn't been seen in. In decades, so I would say for for all of us that uh, we pray for the people of Ukraine today. We pray for peace and the laying down of weapons. We pray for all those who fear for tomorrow. We pray for those with power over war or peace, for wisdom, discernment, and compassion to guide their decisions. And I think if I think we can all be aligned with that, regardless of, of who we are, where we're from. Uh, and not just for Ukraine, but throughout the world, there's uh, so much injustice that we, we have to stand. And, you know, fortunately for us here, we're very lucky at the Children's Hospital that we can align on behalf of children as so we can take care of them. And it's a sense that that's how we can give back to the world and, and uh, keeps us with a clear vision uh, moving forward. And that's what keeps us going. Uh, so, again, thinking of, of the people of Ukraine today for uh, for. Uh, hopefully a recovery very, very shortly, very soon, so that justice prevails over evil. Now, today, we have a very special Grand Rounds. Before I begin, there is a, uh, just a reminder there on the screen about our virtual evening workshop, Pediatric Pain, the overlap between physical and emotional pain, and Dr. Zoffness is going to be there, and there's plenty of time for you to register from 6.30 to 8.00. And so, you know, these are wonderful sessions that you can do at home while you're you know, maybe having dinner and, and enjoy the presentation. Now, today, we have the pleasure of, and really a, the, an honor to have our DPH commissioner, uh, Dr. Jutani, who's going to give us uh, the grand rounds. Uh, she's the commissioner of the state of the Department of Public Health. Uh, she, as you know, she was appointed by the governor to lead DPH in July of last year, 2021. I guess you're a little bit of a glutton for punishment if you take that specific leadership in the middle of, of the COVID pandemic, but I, <clears throat> I think you will see why he chose her in just a minute. Uh, she's been charged uh, with charting the course of the Connecticut COVID-19 response. In that capacity, she advises the governor on new variants protocols, vaccine acceptance, and so much more that is required uh, to deal with COVID-19, and she's done an exceptional job. We're truly grateful to have Dr. Jutani with us uh, this morning. Uh, a little bit about her, a little bit of her background, which I think is important. She comes from the Yale School of Medicine. Uh, her roles at Yale before she became commissioner, and some of them are actually still ongoing. Uh, she's an associate professor of medicine, epidemiology of microbial diseases as well. She used to direct the Infectious Disease Fellowship Program. Her research there uh, focused on the diagnosis and management and prevention of infections in older adults 
specifically uh, UTIs, and she, she was NIH-funded or had been NIH-funded for with the work in UTI prevention, also pneumonia in the nursing home residents. Uh, she has a multitude of peer-reviewed publications in this field, really highly accomplished. She also is Associate Program Director for Career Development in the Internal Medicine Residency Program. Her training is uh, remarkable. Uh, she obtained a bachelor's degree from UPenn, her MD degree from Cornell University Medical College. Then she did a residency in internal medicine at New York Presbyterian Hospital at Cornell. And she served as chief resident also in this institution and at Memorial Sloan Kettering as well. She did her fellowship in infectious disease at Yale, where she stayed on as a, as a faculty member. So you can see she is an incredibly accomplished physician and colleague. She chose well. She went into infectious disease. I think anyone who goes to infectious disease has my respect for all kinds of good reasons. And today she's going to tell us about the COVID-19 epidemic in Connecticut directly from the commissioner. This is really, truly an honor. So Dr. Jutani, thank you again for joining us. And the podium is yours. Thank you so very much for that very kind introduction. And uh, fellow ID physicians always have a camaraderie because we understand why we went into all of this. We all must be gluttons for punishment if uh, we've chosen this path in life. Okay, so thank you very much for that very kind introduction. And you know, really, I appreciate this opportunity to share with you today where we stand in terms of COVID in Connecticut right now at this point in time. So you heard a little bit about my background already, and so I won't go through all these details again, but especially for some of the trainees in the audience, I wanna tell you a little bit about my background because how I came to this point in my career is not something I ever could have charted, nor is it something I would have envisioned that I would have had even the opportunity to pursue. So my background is one of the American dream, quite frankly. My parents were, are two physicians, retired though now, and uh, they came from India in 1970. They came with education and $8 in their pocket, and they made a life for themselves and my siblings and really gave us the opportunity to pursue education and pursue all our dreams in this country. I was born in New York City and went through all the training that all of you have heard. And I came to Connecticut in 2002 and have not left since that time period. Um, and I really had a number of points at which I had critical decisions to make in terms of where I was gonna take my career. And I went into infectious diseases first inspired by a case of typhoid fever in New York City. It was in a NYU student who had not traveled anywhere. And they tracked back a few different cases that happened in New York City through good old fashioned case investigation and reporting to the Department of Public Health in the city uh, of New York and traced it all back to a fast food restaurant in Queens where they identified a fast food worker who was colonized with salmonella typhi and infected a number of people within the city. And that was just fascinating to me. First of all, a fascinating infection and fascinating approach to be able to identify the source of an infection. But what I then found as an ID fellow is as much as I loved the exotic infections and unusual infections, Infections that happened to everyday people in everyday life, things like pneumonia and urinary tract infections were all around us every day. 
And on the other side of what most of you focus on in terms of pediatrics, I focused most of my career on older adults. And I specifically looked at diagnosis, management, and prevention of urinary tract infections and pneumonia in nursing home residents. This culminated in an R01-funded cranberry capsule trial to prevent UTIs in older women. And the trial did not have an outcome that I was hoping for. The cranberry capsules did not work. But I learned so much through that process. And never would I have imagined that all my training in nursing home infection management in the state of Connecticut could have proven so useful to me in this new job that I was tapped for. And I would also just tell you, for those who don't know in the audience, that my exposure to the Lamont administration and to the governor started with me complaining that indoor dining was still open in December of 2020, where I joined, joined a number of other physicians who were asking for indoor dining to be shut. And really a credit to his administration and to the governor that they listened to us brought us into the conversation. And although the policy did not change, it created an opportunity for dialogue and it created an opportunity for us to work together, ultimately leading to my appointment in this role today. So I share that background with you because I want for the trainees to specifically know that anything is possible. And really what I advise people to do is to focus on your work. Don't worry about what's coming down the road. And just keep your eye on the ball. If you do that, you have no idea what opportunities might come your way going forward. So I wanted to take just a moment to talk about some of my priorities at DPH as I'm starting this profession and starting this particular uh, venue that we're pursuing now. So of course, COVID-19 is front and center. We're dealing with that every day. And of course, that's what most of my work is still focused on. But as COVID is settling, there are so many other very important areas that we need to focus on. So climate and public health is such an important one. And for many of you, you may see asthma, particularly in children, as something that is certainly impacted by climate and the way that climate influences health. Uh, I consider it revitalizing public health, the behavioral health crisis that we've seen in CCMC and many other places, particularly in children, is a consequence of this pandemic. It existed before, but there's no doubt that this pandemic has exacerbated feelings of isolation, feelings of distress, and not sure what to do, where to go. Um, and I think that revitalizing our workforce, whether it be in healthcare or in public health, and building local health capacity are really critical to being able to advance all our missions as we go forward. And health equity and access is really an overarching principle that manages all these different areas that I hope to be able to focus more on in the months ahead. So I wanted to start with just a little bit of an update. Where do we stand right now? So first of all, if we look at our case rates across the state, I like this sort of heat map of various different levels. People have seen a number of our old reporting with our old metrics that really honestly were developed before vaccinations. They were developed in September of 2020. And you know, people are used to seeing our graphs and our state charts going from gray to yellow to orange to red. 
and we are coming off the red. Uh, but even that metric is a little bit outdated relative to where we are now with a very highly vaccinated population. But what we can see in this particular heat map is that if we go back to mid-January, you can see that our cases were highest on the eastern part of the state. You know, earlier in January, that first week of January was really our peak peak um, in terms of the Omicron wave. And over the next couple of weeks, what you can see is that as we're approaching the last week of January, first couple of weeks of February, COVID cases throughout our state have settled tremendously, which is all very positive, shows us that we're going in the right direction, with the dark purple being more heavy COVID concentration, and even in the eastern part of the state, it lightening up. If we look at COVID cases, you know, one of the things that I think is most remarkable in this pandemic is that if we go back and look at what our height of cases were last winter, it was somewhere in the 20,000 mark, somewhere in that. And what this Omicron wave showed us was that this particular variant was so highly infectious, although milder, so highly infectious that we hit our peak in that first week of January of 63,362 cases. And again, those are cases that were identified through PCR testing that we have reported or uh, you know, antigen tests that get reported to the state, not the self-test kits. And you can see that after that first week, we've had a significant drop off. We also do know that as a state, we have put over 4 million, and most recently with uh, additional deployments of tests to schools, we've had an additional almost 2 million tests already go out. So we're looking at over 6 million self-test kits that have been distributed throughout the state. And we are seeing our cases come down dramatically. One thing we also did see in this Omicron wave is that we did start to see more reinfection. And the reinfection rate really happened with this Omicron wave. We had very small numbers of reinfection prior to the Omicron wave. And part of that, I think, is waning immunity. There are people that got COVID earlier on in the pandemic or maybe last winter, and about a year had passed. And even with vaccinations, some were boosted, some were not. Many had mild infections, but what you can see with reinfections is we've had about 23,000 reinfections that have been documented in the state. There may be others that were identified through self-tests and the deaths associated with reinfection have been 81 in our state. And again, those numbers are most highly concentrated in our oldest age groups. And so again, as I said earlier, Never would I have realized that my focus on aging and infectious diseases could have been so helpful when it came to this particular pandemic, because at the end of the day, age has still remained our number one predictor of morbidity from COVID, even aside from a number of the other comorbidities that we do see. Okay, so now moving on to a little bit about hospital admissions. What we can see now here in terms of our COVID admission rate per 100,000 to our acute care hospitals, we're looking at the various different age groups that we see. And you can see that our um, you know, darkest color there is the population probably most of interest 
to the group uh, listening to this particular talk, which is our zero to 19 year olds. And they are, of course, the smallest number on the bottom. And even among our pediatric population, the number of people that are being admitted to the hospital is coming down dramatically. In our oldest age groups, people 80 and older, it is also coming down dramatically. But as I said, even though this age group is so highly vaccinated in our state, upwards of 95%, and boosting rates are also the highest in this age group, <clears throat> nevertheless, we know that hospitalizations have been highest in this particular age group. But all these data are re very remarkable to say that we are coming very far from where we were. I think the other thing to just note is that you can see compared to our wave last winter, which was pre-vaccination and was you know, in the midst of vaccine rollout, we did not have as a, a strong a peak up and down. We also see that the oldest age groups were the most affected. However, our case rates versus hospitalizations are disproportionate. So what I mean by that is the Omicron wave, because it is a milder version of the virus, we had far more infections. For example, as I said, we had roughly 20,000 as our high point of cases, but you can see where hospitalizations were. So now if we had 65,000 cases and where our hospitalizations were, the number of hospitalizations relative to 65,000 cases was still lower in this particular variant than in previous variants. And so in particular, looking at our pediatric population, what we can see is that our pediatric census and admissions to acute care hospitals has also dramatically come down. So what we can see in the bar graph on the right is that our peak of 112 admissions was in that first week of January. And as uh, many know, not all of these children were admitted for COVID. Um, it is very challenging to tease out if they were admitted just with COVID or for COVID. But during this time period, we were doing chart reviews. And uh, there were about half that were related specifically to COVID and the other half were not. Um, but we all know that in the hospital, if you're COVID positive, you still are doing precautions and other things necessary to protect other patients. And so it still is a burden on the healthcare system if somebody is COVID positive. So I think this just shows the reflection of where we're headed. And we can see that the last data point that I have on this graph is for February 19th. Um, I'm confident that we're continuing to go in the right direction and that this number is continuing to go down in terms of the pediatric population. So now I wanted to talk a little bit about just vaccination rates and breakthrough cases, because this is something that has been on everybody's minds. And I would also just say, going back to that hospitalization data that I presented on that last slide, in some of the chart reviews that were done, uh, it was identified that none of the children that had been admitted to the hospital had been vaccinated. So again, that just drives home what we know, which is that out of all the mitigation measures we have for COVID-19, vaccination is our number one way to be able to help prevent COVID and the morbidity associated with it. Just looking at our vaccination rates, um, some of the things I wanna highlight here, particularly for the pediatric population, 
We can see that for five to 11 year olds, we've had, uh, you know, we're making good progress. We're about 44% with at least one dose and about 35% who are fully vaccinated. And what we have seen is that by and large, uh, children who are going in for their first dose are coming back for their second dose, which is reassuring. So, you know, I think every day we'll get closer and closer to that higher number. But we obviously have a lot of work to do here. And my plea to all of you and any of the pediatricians listening to this is that we all know uh, masking has become optional in uh, most school districts. We're looking at probably about 85 to 90 percent of school districts moving towards mask optional policies. And I think we're in a good place right now. However, going into the fall, I do anticipate that we will see a surge again. And I do anticipate that I'm hoping that we get about six months of reprieve. I don't know if that will happen. We have seen, as we did last year, that Delta came during the summer. It came from overseas. And every single variant we've had so far has first been identified overseas, whether it was the Alpha variant, which first was identified in the UK, or the Delta variant first identified in South Asia, or then Omicron first identified in Africa. And then we see a surge that comes after that. And what I'm most concerned about at this point is not about what's happening right now, because I do think we're in the right direction, but I am concerned what is going to happen in the fall and as we go into the winter, particularly with our youngest age groups, because really what we have seen with this behavioral health crisis and with everything that's happened in education is that in-person learning, there is no substitute. And if we have elementary schools that are not very highly vaccinated, we may end up with outbreaks where schools do have to shut their doors for some period of time to be able to manage the virus. And so my great hope is that we can continue our efforts to get our children vaccinated. And again, I know most of the pediatricians are on board with this message. I think most of the people listening to this all are in agreement with that. But any opportunity that you have, any patient and family that comes through your doors, please take the moment to really push this message. The best we can do going into the fall season is to get these kids vaccinated before school starts in the fall. And so again, what we're seeing here is that we've got about 44% of five to 11 year olds who have had one dose. 12 to 15 year olds would, were making even better progress with about 80% who've received one dose and 71% that are fully vaccinated. So, you know, we're, we, we keep doing better with more time that passes, which is why I have great confidence that more parents will come on board and see that this is safe. Uh, for 16 to 17 year olds, we're up to 86.2% one dose and 78.4% fully vaccinated. And I think those are the groups that are most important for this audience. And so we still have work to do, but we've made great progress in the state of Connecticut. And so if we look at the percentage of those that are fully vaccinated, 78.4% of eligible people are fully vaccinated so, so far, and 43% of eligible people have received a booster. So now just to go on the booster topic for a moment, for anybody in this audience who has not received a booster shot, we have seen consistently that immunity absolutely wanes after two doses. And so 
Many will feel that, you know, um, many have felt that they're tired of getting shots or, you know, or they got Omicron and what's the point? Uh, we're seeing that the immunity that booster shots provide seems to be quite long lasting, going to four and five months. And what the future holds in terms of variant specific Shots, we, the future is unknown to us, but we do know that boosters are providing an additional layer of immunity that is even longer lasting. So we want to continue to work on that 43% of eligible people getting boosters and continue, particularly as we go into the fall. As COVID may wane from people's memory, um, and I don't, if we have a surge this summer, it may not wane, uh, but if we do have some reprieve, I think that what we want to really do is get people on board with getting those booster shots. Um, and particularly if they have not received it yet, particularly before the fall. So again, now just going to cases and deaths among our vaccinated and by age group, what we can see among our fully vaccinated is that, you know, certainly with Omicron, we saw that as immunity wanes, and as the vaccine is not an Omicron specific vaccine, that, that we did have more breakthrough cases. There's no doubt about that. However, what we found was that with boosters, the breakthrough cases were significantly less. So you can see that among the fully vaccinated, we did have almost 168,000 breakthrough cases. For boosted people, we had 33,000 plus cases that occurred in people. Um, and if we look at our various age groups where this has happened, you know, it's a slightly different story because our oldest know they're the most vulnerable. And so they take the most precautions to protect themselves. So you can see that among our oldest age groups, the rate of breakthrough cases was lower than some of our middle-aged age groups who are out and about and wanting to do things, particularly during the holidays and other seasons. Um, and I think that what we see in our youngest age groups is that many of them were not even fully vaccinated yet. So that question is a difficult question to answer. But then when we look at deaths and we look at the number of deaths among those that were fully vaccinated and those that were boosted, what we can see is again, the story of age really does predominate. And so we had 451 deaths among those who were fully vaccinated in the 75 plus year age group and 80 in the 75 plus age group um, deaths among people who were boosted. So unfortunately, you know, for many of these people, we've also seen that many of them do have additional comorbidities that are associated with that. It's not just age. Um, for many people know that the Queen of England had COVID. I believe she's 95 years old and she's recovering well. So we know that there is a spectrum of what happens in every age group. Uh, but we do know that our oldest are the ones who still have borne the most consequence of this virus. Okay. And so now I wanted to just talk a little bit about variants of concern. And this particular slide is from the CDC, and what we are looking at here is the percentage of the different variants that we saw circulating in the United States, starting on the bottom, you can see the dates in November, and then going all the way to the week of February 19th. 
And again, what an impressive infectious disease story, a story of how rapidly a virus can overtake our community. It's really quite fascinating how viruses operate. And so what you can see in the orange is that was the Delta variant. And so looking back to November, and it was around December 4th that we identified our first case here in Connecticut. So it was the Friday after Thanksgiving that the first case of Omicron was announced to the world from South Africa. And on December 4th, we identified our first case in Connecticut. And if you look at December 4th, which is the third bar graph, and then you look at how the Omicron variant, which is all of the purple, different subvariants of Omicron, overtook in such a short period of time. So that by the time we were getting to Christmas, and you can see um, you know, about five or six in is Christmas week, where all of a sudden now the Omicron variant is the predominant variant that is circulating throughout the United States. And then by the first week of January, almost all of what is circulating in the United States is the Omicron variant. And so this just speaks to the highly infectious nature of this particular variant and how it overtook our country. Now, one of the things that's interesting is the BA2 subvariant that we see in Omicron. So it's the third down on that list. It's the lavender, the lightest purple, was one that we were bracing ourselves, uh, wondering if this was going to end up becoming more of a problem for us, um, as it has been in Denmark and some other countries around the world. And, you know, it's again, we don't understand everything about this virus. We don't understand everything about the dynamics of how it operates, how it goes up and down. And so what we saw is that, you know, we did have some increase in BA2, but it has not had a substantial burden in the United States. We've continued to see cases going down. And so if we look at our numbers here in Connecticut, this is just a reflection, tells the same exact story that I told for the entire United States, but just looks at what we do here in Connecticut. And what we're seeing is that out of identified variants, we've only had 10 of BA2. So it did grow a little bit to be roughly 2% of those that we test, uh, but it has not been something that has changed the overall trajectory of where cases have been going for COVID in Connecticut, which is a good thing. And what we don't know is, is BA2 gonna be what comes back when we see another surge? We just really don't know the answer to that. And just so you all know, we have five different labs and partners around the state that get a great different geographic distribution of variants in our state. And we do a subset of testing for those PCR tests that are done. And then we do a subset to test for variants. And it's interesting, we had all Delta for a long time. And so I was actually starting to pull back a little bit on the number of variant testings that we were doing because they're very expensive. Um, we've spent a lot of money that we've been given by the CDC to be able to do variant testing. But then as soon as Omicron was identified, we maintained our level of variant testing. 
And then again, once it became all Omicron, we pulled back a little bit, but then we learned about BA2. So then we again went back to full force in terms of variant testing through our five different lab partners, including our state lab. And we're going to continue to monitor that. There's certain testing that's done by the CDC directly, and there's certain testing that we do in the state lab. I wanted to talk just a little bit about how we are going to continue to monitor COVID going forward as we are reaching this new era um, and really new paradigm in terms of how we think of COVID. So one way that we're going to do that is through wastewater surveillance. And I wanted to tell you a little bit about a program that the CDC has stood up for wastewater surveillance. So early in this pandemic, Yale started to do this. The state had partnered with Yale to get uh, samples of wastewater testing for COVID in New Haven. And what the CDC has done is they are enrolling sites throughout the country. And so we've been working with all our local health departments and local water districts to be able to get a sense of wastewater surveillance. So we have two sites that are already on board, which is Bridgeport and Waterbury. Uh, Stamford is enrolled. And then these other sites that are in pink are currently enrolling. And what we are able to do with this is they look at a few different things. Looking at wastewater, they can look at changes in SARS-CoV-2. And so you can see, for example, on the left with um, Waterbury and uh, Bridgeport already being online, you can see that by being in the uh, light blue, Bridgeport has already gone to a significant change down in terms of the amount of COVID or SARS-CoV-2 that is detected in wastewater. Waterbury, we don't have enough data yet to be able to make that conclusion. On the right side, what they're looking at, they have a certain threshold for detection of SARS-CoV-2. And what it really is telling us is, you know, the number of samples through which SARS-CoV-2 was detected. So between these two different metrics, what we're hoping is, again, as we get a few more weeks into this, and certainly in months, that I'm very hopeful that we are going to have a good summer and that we will see very low levels of SARS-CoV-2 in our wastewater. And this is a much better predictor than percent positivity or something like that, which is very reliant on who is going to get a PCR test. And so this is, you know, detecting what is shed in feces and which we know that SARS-CoV-2 is. And so it's a great barometer for us to tell us what might be coming, usually about two weeks in advance. The other thing that we're now doing is looking at, a, you know, revised guidance that we're looking at in terms of what metrics, you know, as we were making decisions going into these last several weeks, one of the things I felt was that our old metrics of case rates were not really reflective of burden on the healthcare system. We know that percent positivity is limited, limited by who's actually going to get tests. Cases certainly do reflect something. But what we can see through the new CDC metric that was just announced on Friday is really something that is looking at community levels of COVID. And this was re released on Friday. So this is just our first view into what is happening in Connecticut. And what we found was that in the state of Connecticut, seven of our eight counties are all in the low level. And so there are three different levels. And this is really guided by three different metrics, the number of cases of COVID per 100,000 that are identified, the number of patients admitted with COVID in the hospital, and the capacity that our hospitals have. 
Now, we know that there are a number of things that go into that third metric, but the other two are pretty straightforward. And some may say, well, that's not accounting for self-tests. But I think that's okay because if somebody does a self-test and gets better in four or five days, that is not a burden to our healthcare system. However, if somebody is not improving, if somebody goes to the doctor, if somebody goes and gets a follow-up test, somebody ends up in the emergency department, all of those tests would be captured, would be captured for the purposes of this type of metric. And that's why I do think that this particular metric is very helpful as we think about the burden of COVID in our communities going forward. And so low levels, really what are recommended is that masking is uh, optional. It is something that everybody can choose to do if they feel more comfortable with it. Vaccinations are our number one thing we need to do. And absolutely, if you're symptomatic, stay home, get tested. In the medium category, if you are high risk of severe illness, in general, it's going to be recommended that you wear a mask. In the low level, really, it's one of a conversation and a risk, a question of risk tolerance and risk assessment. So for some people, really wearing a mask all the time is really what's going to be safest for them. But that's really going to be a decision on an individual level. And I do think that even if everybody around you is not wearing a mask, if you wear a mask, it is still protective to you. So I think that that is one thing that I try to stress to our most immunocompromised. Also that we have so many medications that are also available and medications to be able to do pre-exposure prophylaxis with Evusheld for our most immunocompromised. And then when we get to our high level, which you know I hope we don't get there, but I am prepared that as we get into the fall, and winter, we may end up back there, that mask wearing is going to be recommended again. And so the precautions around all the different mitigation strategies we have, including you know, vaccination and masking, they're, they're a layered strategy, ventilation, and that we sort of ramp up these strategies and ramp them down depending on the amount of virus that we have circulating. And this is just another image of really Middlesex being the one county I will not be surprised if by the end of this week, they update those data on a weekly basis. I'm hopeful that Middlesex is also in the green category. So I wanna just give you um, in my last couple slides, a um, sort of view of where we stand today relative to this entire pandemic. And so our this particular graph is using last December as our high watermark or sort of our, you can see the percentage change of 0% is because last December was what we were using as our reference range. So in the initial wave, you can see where deaths were the highest in our initial wave. That is that darkest line. And our ICU census was highest in that initial wave. Case testing was not optimal at that time period. So we don't really have a good reflection of what that means. Then we go into December of 2020, and that's where you can see that's, you know, sort of our high watermark for that, using that as our reference range, because that is when vaccine rollout happened. And you see the little bump that happened in the spring of 21 with the alpha variant, then over the summer with the delta variant, a little, you know, uptick then again. And then looking at that Omicron variant, I think, again, the thing that is most remarkable about this particular graph is that separation between cases where cases were so much higher relative to hospital census, ICU census, 
But now look at the remarkable story of vaccination, because look at where deaths, that dark line, where they are relative to every other point of deaths in our state. And so it is a success story of vaccinations. It's also reflective of a less virulent variant with the Omicron variant. And I just want to end with a couple of points about our nursing home story, although less relevant for pediatricians. Um, You know, I think that the nursing home story also is just a remarkable story. If you look at cases being the dark line and deaths being the purple, how so many deaths occurred in the nursing home setting in the initial wave of this pandemic, going back to the spring of 2020. However, in each subsequent wave, and particularly in the Omicron wave, the deaths associated in the nursing home are so far down, and it just speaks to our infection control practices and the benefits of vaccination. So with that, I will stop and we'll take any questions that you might have, and thank you for this opportunity. Thank you uh, very much, Commissioner. That was a truly outstanding, very clear talk and, and uh, with provided a lot of great information. Uh, so we have, uh, we have time for questions here, and I'm going to begin. Uh, the first one is, uh, is a scenario, uh, and the, uh, the question is, if you had COVID in November of 2020, then vaccinated twice and got COVID in December of 2021 again, would you recommend a booster? Yeah, and I know this is, this is I think, the question that many people have. And I believe this is where we have sort of slow booster uptake. Now, what I would tell you very emphatically is that I really still do think getting a booster shot is important. I would wait a month from when you had COVID. And what we know with the Omicron variant is that you... You know, I don't know in your particular situation if you had mild disease or not. You certainly got increased immunity by getting COVID. But what we're seeing with booster shots is the level of immunity that you achieve is so much higher that I truly do feel that give your body a month to recover, uh, to not have, you know, maybe as strong a reaction to the vaccine. But I would really recommend getting a booster because we're seeing that the immunity that is associated with booster shots is long lasting. So I do strongly recommend boosters still, but I would give yourself a month to um, before you get that one booster. Great. Thank you. Uh, next question is uh, how will future increases in wastewater coronavirus detection be communicated to the general public? So first of all, that site that I showed is available, um, you know, and uh, anybody can go onto it. Uh, Right now, as you uh, may or may not know, we report COVID statistics on a daily basis through the Department of Public Health. As we transition to more of a maintenance model for this infection, we will be issuing a weekly report. So we have a very long PDF that gets uh, distributed on a weekly basis. But my goal would be to incorporate these wastewater testing metrics, um, you know, into our report. However, what I would say is that the media, uh, the press, um, the CDC will be monitoring this on a regular basis and people will have access to this because these are publicly available sites. And so certainly if you're interested, you can go to the CDC wastewater site and be able to look it up yourself but we will also be monitoring it very closely as a department. 
And we just posted the website on the link there for those of you who are interested. Thanks uh, for doing that. Yep. Our wonderful staff here. Uh, question for you is, is SARS-CoV-2 shed in the urine? So to my knowledge, and I could be wrong about this, and I will ask you, Dr. Salazar, if you know anything other than what I know, I do not believe it is shed in the urine. Uh, it is most definitely shed in feces, but I am not aware that it is shed in urine. But that doesn't mean it's not. Uh, not either, but we'll we'll follow up with, a, we'll do a little bit of a PubMed search and see what's out there. But I think it's feces is the is correct. From uh, one of our pediatricians, uh, again, this is the issue about uh, fake news and and the internet. And of course, if you look at the internet, it, it, you will find um, all kinds of misinformation about how the vaccine causes death. Do you have any information of any case that has been reported to you that an adverse event with any of the COVID vaccines led to death? No, I am not aware of any such cases. Um, you know, I think particularly for the pediatricians in the group, there um, are times when the concern of myocarditis and whether that has actually resulted in death. And what I can say is that there are cases where it has been potentially suggested, but in two cases that I'm aware of, there were other etiologies that, whether it be another virus or another incident that happened, that honestly, as a physician, seem more likely correlated with the cause of death. So I am not aware of any cases where the vaccine has resulted in death in this population. Yeah, no, and I, I'm or in any population, quite frankly. Fully agree with that. I think there's a lot of misinformation about this. And we, you know, this is a, one of those elements that has been unfortunate, you know, the, yeah. the result of this. Uh, from uh, one of our pediatricians, very happy to see that wastewater testing is taking place. And that's an excellent way to see the burden in particular communities. Uh, I think there's more of a comment than just as an aside in the two remaining countries with polio uh, still prevent that that's the best way to follow vaccine rates. So it's uh, mo mostly a comment from uh, Dr. Bloomer. Mm -hmm. And I will just tell you to that we are looking to bring on as many sites in Connecticut as possible. So I've asked Dr. Carter to really work with local health to bring on as many of our wastewater options as possible. So we really blanket the state. That's fantastic. Uh, from uh, one of our uh, advanced practitioners, will you expect fully boosted people to need another booster after six months? Uh, I think that's a million dollar question right now. Um, you know, I really don't know. I, I think that we need to continue to monitor what happens over these next few months. So for example, I got my booster in October. It's been many months as, as the NIH and other vaccine producers look at the sustainability of immunity for people that have gotten booster shots for over a long period of time ago, they will get a better sense. And I think what we see is that Pfizer is making an Omicron-specific vaccine. Whether that'll be a booster or necessary or not, I think only time will tell. If I was to give you broad strokes answer to that question, I do think we're going to need um, some boosters as time goes on. Whether it's going to be for this fall or not, I don't know the answer to that. Um, but I definitely think that, you know, whether it's going to be yearly or every two years and variant specific, I do envision that as part of how we see this going forward. 
Great, thank you. Uh, uh, question regarding regarding long COVID. What what has been the state's experience? What is the anticipated health burden going forward? And how does the risk of long COVID intersect with the CDC's new guidelines? So I think what we've seen is that, um, and again, I've not looked at the formal, more recent data on this, but we know that we have centers at Yale and others that are looking at patients with long COVID. And the greatest burden of long COVID is among those who, who got COVID early on throughout, but also who were unvaccinated. And I think the more and more we develop immunity in our community, whether it be vaccinations, a combination of vaccinations and primary infection and boosting. And, you know, we're, we're really building the amount of immunity that we have in our community. And particularly in this last Omicron wave between people who were either vaccinated, boosted, infected, there are very few people left who have had no exposure to either a vaccine or the virus at this, state, uh, this point in time. And so I think that does change the calculus of how we think about this particular uh, virus. And I think we have more to learn about whether long COVID is something we are gonna continue to see as a problem among vaccinated and boosted individuals, and potentially even with people getting reinfected. My sense is that this has become a smaller and smaller number because at a state level, it is not something that has been a primary burden that we've had to see. There's no doubt that it is a burden to many people who are going through this. I don't want to undermine that at all. It absolutely is. But my hope is that as we continue to get more and more people with immunity in our population, I hope that long COVID will become less of a problem for us to deal with. A couple more questions from uh, Dr. Tom Framson. Uh, belated welcome and thank you for your presentation. Could you offer guidance regarding in-office infection control protocol? For example, we continue to COVID screen and test patients in their cars. Our waiting room has not reopened. Second well children are escorted directly to an exam room. Uh, many thanks. Yeah, so I think this is, you know, a, a, a real challenge as healthcare is trying to transition. I do know that the CDC is going to be coming out with more guidelines that I think will be helpful to all of you. So what we saw on Friday was their first unveiling of this sort of new paradigm, the paradigm shift of how we think of COVID and how we manage it in our communities. I do know that they're going to be coming out with guidance for schools and for early childhood. But as we know in our state, we already started moving forward with that. What I envision their guidance looking like is very similar to what people are already doing because they have already signaled that this guidance that came out on Friday should be applied to K through 12 schools. So now healthcare is the next big problem. You know, how long do we mask? How do we screen? How do you manage all of these things? And so I think there are a couple of approaches you can use. You know, you can certainly continue what you're doing right now. You can wait for the CDC, which will come. I, I think it's a question of in the next couple of weeks. I, do, I don't know that for sure. I have not been given a timeline from them on how healthcare would be changing. But I do think you can start to evaluate um, how you want to use your waiting room. You know, I do think it's a challenge to 
in terms of workflow, you know, and in, in, in pediatricians' offices to continue doing what you're doing. But in many ways, it might be easier to for you to just wait to see what the CDC says and make one change at that point in time, which I don't think is going to be that far away versus trying to come up with something in between and, and then adjust to whatever the CDC says, CC, CDC says uh, you know, not in that far off in the distance. Great. Thank you. Uh, the, you know, there's recent data, and I think there was a, uh, at least a preliminary publication about the effectiveness of the Pfizer vaccine for five to 11 year olds, perhaps being less effective, uh, especially against Omicron, uh, although it's still effective against hospitalization and death. Uh, one of our pediatricians, Dr. McGilpin, says very concerned protection so far uh, is poor, so, we, so it's hard to convince parents to get their child vaccinated. Um, and so the, the question is, uh, comments on, on, on the lack of full effectiveness of the vaccine in 5 to 11-year-olds and perhaps the low uptake of the vaccine. What are your thoughts? This is such a challenging question because, you know, I, I mean, we're hearing that today, right, that the, um, the effectiveness of this vaccine in 5 to 11-year-olds is not as good. And, um, you know, we know that it's a third of the dose. And so it's, it's a real challenge. I think um, what I would like to see is that Pfizer comes out with a solution to that um, in short order. Uh, you know, I, we've talked about whether boosting, whether increasing the dose. The problem with all this, as we all know, anybody who's done clinical trials, you have to go back to what is the dose, you know, that you might test in this population if you're going to increase the dose. And I'm sure they had many different arms. I don't remember the details of the five to 11 year old studies in terms of the initial dosing studies and, you know, what the data looked like there in terms of what the next dose might be, if not the 30 uh, dose. Um, and so I, I think this is a very valid question because the question is, if there's going to be a change in the next few months that is going to provide them with more protection going into the fall, is there utility to waiting for that change and getting them the best vaccine that they can get that's going to be most protective going into the fall? So I, you know, I, I, I hear you. I hear what you're saying. And, uh, you know, I would I would look to some of you because I do think that you have those established relationships with patients and you need to have trust. People need to believe what you're saying and, and why you're saying it. And, you know, uh, you want to maintain that trust. And so at some level, you know, I, I would I would be looking to all of you to see what you think would work, because I I do think there is some validity to say, you know, let's see what happens over these next couple of months. If you didn't get vaccinated yet, you know, obviously I would have been pushing vaccination very strongly over these last several months that it was available because it was better than nothing. And it would certainly be better than what we have going forward. So um, I, I, that's what I would say. And I, I think I would look forward to more data as we get it. Great. Thanks. Yeah, obviously a complicated uh, question and response. Um, we'll, we'll follow up on that uh, on our, uh, I'm going to ask Dr. Shriver on Friday to uh, pick up on this topic on our COVID-19 update. Uh, last question from uh, Dr. Spiegelman, one of our pediatricians. As children return to school unmasked, we expect to see more URIs, et cetera, et cetera. Do we need to continue to ask all our COVID pre-visit questions regarding travel exposure, all time consuming? Do we test all these kids? 
Yeah. So I would say, first of all, that travel exposure, um, those questions, probably you can start to peel back on. I I do think CDC will give you some guidance on this. Um, I do think that for URIs, you know, um, getting a sense of where COVID is relative to the other URIs that you might be experiencing still doesn't hurt, right? To maintain the uh, level of protection that we can have in our community. So I probably would test to get a sense of where we are. Uh, But I do think we're going to see a change in that protocol over the years ahead, because it may very well be that COVID becomes another URI that we see among young children. But that story still remains to be told. Great. Uh, Dr. Jutani, thank you again for the spectacular Grand Rounds. Great information, very clearly presented and uh, very useful for our pediatricians, our learners and our staff. Uh, so we'll hope to invite you once again, uh, perhaps in the fall, to give an update on where we are, hopefully past the pandemic at that time, and uh, to provide more information about the vaccines. Uh, for all of you, Friday, we have uh, Ask the Experts back with Dr. Shriver and Jen Cates. Uh, it's, uh, this is a, both the COVID and then the children's vaccination update. So it's very relevant to the questions that were asked today. Uh, next week's Grand Rounds uh, on emulsifiers and intestinal health and introduction. So join in us for, for that topic as well. And so have a, a good week. We'll stay safe and we will see you again on Friday and then Tuesday. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Grand Rounds. For the most recent updates, please consider subscribing or find us on our Facebook group, Connecticut Children's Continuing Medical Education or online at connecticutchildrens.org slash podcast slash grand dash rounds.